0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I have read that the American Atheist Society wants their own holiday, sort of like Christians have Christmas and Uh, Those in the Jewish faith have Hanukkah, and there's been several suggestions like a day called Agnostica, seriously, that is celebrated on December 14th. Uh, Others have suggested, they have suggested Festivus, which is really something that comes from a Seinfeld episode. Um, uh, Others have suggested Halloween. Um, I'm suggesting perhaps April 1st, wouldn't be a, a bad take on it. Because the Bible declares it's the fool that has said in his heart, there is no God. A better translation would be, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Not there is no God, not denying the existence of God per se, but really, no God for me. It's a personal choice. The fool has said that. When we opened the Bible, we discovered that it's as if an assumption is made that those who are going to be reading it are aware of God's existence. Because it just starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no philosophical argument for His existence, just God creating. Why? Because, once again, it would be foolish to deny the existence of God, as well as foolish to say no to God. Dr. Adrian Rogers tells an interesting story. He said that there is a trucking company down in the South that as part of the hiring requirements you have to take a lie detector test. And one of the questions they ask those taking the test is, do you believe in God? And according to Adrian Rogers and this trucking company, that even the avowed atheist who says no on the test, it comes up on the polygraph, lie. (laughs) So, first things first tonight in our study. God, how do we relate to God? What does God basically require of us? And we discover basically God expects two things. Ready? Here they are. Supreme devotion to him, number 1, and sincere affection for others. Supreme devotion for him and second sincere affection for others. That's why as we've already noted last week in our introductory comments that there are two tables of the law. There is uh, the first four commandments and the second six commandments. And the first four, we noted, were vertical. They are theocentric, God-centered. The second six are horizontal. They're anthropocentric. They're man-centered. They have to deal with dealing with people on this horizontal level. Even Jesus summed up the law in Mark 12, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So today, tonight, and in the weeks ahead, this is going to be our focus. And let's look at the first three verses, which is the first commandment and its introduction. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So we begin right where God begins. God begins with himself. He's the top priority for everyone. You know, some years back, the Encyclopedia Britannica started putting out They introduced a 55-volume set called The Great Books of Western Civilization or The Great Books of the Western World. And it's the compilation of great minds, great thinkers uh, on all sorts of different subjects, ideologies from art, medicine, law, etc. And it's been noted that the, the longest essay in these books is the essay on God. And Mortimer J. Adler, who was the executive chairman of Encyclopedia Britannica at the time, was asked why, and this is what he said It's because more consequences for life follow from that one issue than any other issue. It's the biggest essay because the stakes are so high. If there is a God, then there is a moral law, He's the creator of all things. There is a moral law, and there are consequences. If there is no God, then really nothing makes sense. There is no moral law, and it's just a stab in the dark. It's just a guess. More consequences follow from that issue. Well, if the fool has said in his heart, no God, what do you say in your heart? You say, yes, God. And so we find out tonight in this first commandment what God requires of us and our relationship to Him. So there's three basic parts to this first commandment. And the first two parts form the basis for the third part. And you'll see what I mean as we get into it. The first part is God's claim. The second part is God's care. And based upon His claim and His care come the first command. So the command is built and predicated upon God's claim and God's care. God is basically saying... This is who I am to you. This is what I've done for you. Therefore, this is what I expect from you or I want from you. So let's go back to the first and second verses. And the Lord spoke or God spoke all these words saying. Here's his claim. I am the Lord your God. Stop right there. 164 times in the Old Testament alone is this phrase, I am the Lord And sometimes it's, I am the Lord your God, or I am the Lord their God, or I am the Lord who did this or did that. 164 times, I am the Lord. And sometimes it's an introduction. Usually, it's a premise for a commandment. It's like, here's the ultimate reason you ought to do this. Because I'm the Lord. You may remember coming home, or your parents coming home, I should say, and uh, maybe uh, you disagreed with a certain thing they wanted you to do and you said, why should I do that? And they would simply say, I'm your dad. That's why. Because I said so. And usually when you were a kid, that was enough, right? You didn't, if you were smart, go beyond that. (laughs) I am the Lord. So God begins with this bold declaration, I am the Lord your God. And so what we see is God stakes his claim with his name. Now, we don't know how to pronounce the name of God. Here, if you were reading the Hebrew, it's a tetragrammaton, a four-lettered, four-consonant word that is typically said Yahweh or the old pronunciation, Jehovah. It's the ineffable, unpronounceable name of God that probably means I am that I am or I will be that I will be. It's God, the self-existent one. Nobody made Him up. Nobody created Him. He is who He is. He is completely self-existent, completely self-sufficient, and He stakes His claim with His own name. Now, Notice that the first command that God gives in the top ten is not, You shall believe in the Lord your God. doesn't say that. did doesn't say, Thou shalt not be an atheist. Because again, there is that assumption. It's the fool who has said in his heart, There is no God. I've always loved the story about the atheist and the Quaker who had a conversation. And the atheist thought he could mentally work the Quaker out of his belief in God. And the atheist said, have you ever seen your God? And the Quaker said, no. The atheist went on, have you ever heard God? No. Have you ever touched God? No. Have you ever smelled God? And the Quaker said, no. Or as the Quaker would say, nay. And the atheist smugly smiled and said, Well, then how do you even know there is a God? Quaker smiled and said, Hast thou seen thy brain? (laughs) Hast thou touched thy brain? And hast thou smelled thy brain? The atheist indignantly said, Of course not. And of course, what followed you can expect. Then how dost thou know that thou even hast a brain? said the Quaker. So, in this top ten list and this first command, there's no apology given, there's no explanation, there's no argument for the existence of God, there's no philosophical clarification, rather a bold declaration, I am the Lord your God. And that's important to note. Because everything that follows is a revelation from that one true God. I remember years that I spent working toward a master's degree and having to take courses in philosophy and philosophic thought and you know I discovered these philosophers are a confusing bunch of folks. I mean it is wearisome to read and pour through their thoughts and their cavetchings and their wranglings. One person said philosophers are people who talk about things they don't understand but they make it sound like it's your fault. (laughs) All questions and no answers. And I've spoken to a lot of different people who when it comes to God and spiritual things they just make stuff up. Well I sort of feel and I kind of think and it seems to me and they'll even say I'm a very spiritual person but There's no revelation. It's all imagination. They're imagining things. They're making it all up. Well, God has given us a revelation of Himself. We don't have to make things up or suppose we follow what the Lord, our God, reveals about Himself in the Word. This is who He is. I heard about a golfer who was very, very frustrated with his game. Some of you can really relate with that. And every time he got on the golf course, I mean, he got he came off fuming with higher blood pressure than he went on. So the psychiatrist that he went to said, you know what you ought to do is play a normal game of golf using all the same clubs, going through all the same note motions, but use an imaginary ball. Don't use a real golf ball. Just go out there and imagine in your mind where that ball is going to go. Do a whole round of golf that way. So a guy went out and did it. I mean, he took out his driver and he... he Teed up his imaginary ball and he swung and he imagined that it went 260 yards right down the fairway. He thought, oh, this is pretty fun. That was a good shot. <laughs> and he took out his five iron for the next shot and basically he parred the first hole and he had a great round of golf. Well, on the 18th hole, he met another guy doing exactly the same thing. He was seeing the same shrink. So the first guy said, hey, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll play you this last hole of golf and I'll bet you 20 bucks. (laughs) So the first guy gets up there and swings, and he announces that was 280 yards right down the fairway. The second guy gets up, tees up his imaginary ball, swings, and he announces that, look, I'm right next to you on the first drive, middle of the fairway. They drive down in their cart, get to that shot. They take out their five irons, and the first guy swings, and then he says, Did you look at that? It, it went hit the back of the green, and then with that reverse spin, it rolled right in the hole. And so he announced, I won. The second guy said, No, you didn't. You hit my ball. <laughs> you see, when you make things up, you can say and believe just about anything. And a lot of people will go through life with an imaginary God that they make up. They don't get it from Revelation. It's all imagination. Now, why are there so many ideas in this world about God? One reason. Because people have pushed aside, rejected, and suppressed what God has revealed about Himself. Romans chapter 1 tells us, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So from the beginning, man has pushed away and suppressed God's self-revelation as we have in His Word. So He announces, I am the Lord your God. He stakes His claim with His name. Now look at the second part of that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. If the first part was, this is who I am to you, the Lord your God. The second part is, and besides who I am, this is what I've done for you. I've delivered you out of bondage, out of Egypt. That's redemption. That's for us what we just celebrated a few moments ago in taking the Lord's Supper. Redemption. Now, redemption is what set Israel apart from all the other nations. They would celebrate once a year Passover, celebrating they have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. And it was so dramatic a deliverance that it's spoken of virtually everywhere throughout the Bible. You notice that in the Psalms and the prophets. They would always point back, that is their major frame of reference, God delivered us out of Egypt. They would always make reference to that. Well, I'm I'm delving into this because this truth sets up the first two commandments. I'm the Lord your God, no other gods before me. No graven images, no idols. So keep in mind, this group of people, the children of Israel, had been delivered from Egypt... And in Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped a host of gods and goddesses, a whole pantheon of deities that were false deities. So, if I could just paraphrase this thought and press a little bit more, putting it all in context, chapter 19 and 20 together, I would say God is saying to them, three months ago, 90 days before this, you were slaves in Egypt. You were being beaten. You were being tormented. You were being humiliated. I opened the Red Sea for you. I brought you through it. I brought manna down from heaven, water from the rock, protected you from your enemies. Did any of the gods or goddesses of Egypt help out in that deliverance to you or for their own people in Egypt? Did Osiris, the god of the Nile, help the Egyptians? Did Heka, the frog goddess, provide any protection for them or help you? Did Apis, the bull, or Geb, the earth god, have any kind of help available to you or to them? No, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the slavery of Egypt. Now understand what this meant to them. This was so pivotal that the entire Jewish calendar was centered around that redemption. For God said after the deliverance in Exodus 12, This month shall be your beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year to you. So everything started once they were redeemed by God with his mighty hand. That's how they're to order their year based upon that deliverance. And it's sort of like, I remember the first time a 30-year-old walked up to me and said, Congratulate me, I'm two years old today. And I thought, you're a wingnut today, that's for sure. I said, what do you mean, two years old? They said, I've been a believer in Jesus Christ for two years. Today's my spiritual birthday. And I said, okay, now I get it. See, to that person, everything started brand new the moment he received Jesus Christ. It was the beginning to him. Like Second Corinthians 5 tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. So who God was to them and what God had done for them was very important. God was of supreme value for that reason. There's a Sunday school director in Columbus, Ohio named Dennis Avery. Actually, he's the musical director of a church. He said he was walking by a classroom one day and he heard a little 8-year-old boy praying in one of the classrooms, he had bowed his head and he was publicly praying in front of the class, God, uh, bless our mommies and our daddies and our brothers and our sisters and our aunts and our uncles and our puppies. Oh, and God, please, please take care of yourself. Because if anything happens to you, we're sunk. (laughs) What has God done for you? What blessings has God provided for you? See, those are things that we need to keep in the forefront of our minds because the commandment and the commandments are all based upon that. So with that in mind, let's go to the commandment itself. Here's God's command. If He said, this is who I am to you, this is what I've done for you, now God says, this is what I, this is what I want from you. You shall have no other gods before me. That really is the commandment, period, period. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, something you'll notice about all the commandments. For the most part, they're short, punchy little statements. Some have some elaboration attached, but for the most part, they're just short, little, pithy statements. God can say it all in just one little, no other gods before me. No graven images. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. And we get it. There's a woman whose husband died, and she contacted the local newspaper. And she wanted to write that obituary. And so she said, This is what I want you to write Bernie is dead. That's it. <laughs> and the newspaper man on the phone said, Well, ma'am, um, you know, if money is an issue, you, you get six words for $25. So she said, okay, right, Bernie is dead, Toyota for sale. Very, very practical woman. Well, God is very practical. He's basically saying, I'm God, you're not, do this stuff, keep me first. Number one on the list. I just love the way this is introduced. This is who I am to you, this is what I've done for you, no other God's Before me. Like Corey Ten Boom used to say stop giving God counsel, just report for duty. Just report for duty. So have no other gods before him or literally besides me. In other words, I stand alone. I'm not one among many. You can't add me to the pantheon of gods and goddesses from Egypt. I and I alone am unique. You're not to worship angels. You're not to worship people, dead people or alive people. Some people worship Luther or Calvin or Arminius or a host of others. No, God is God and he's the only one that deserves utmost, total, absolute obedience and veneration. Okay. Now in camping on this commandment And bringing this toward a close I want to frame this for you If I can Historically first of all Historically we see why God Gave this commandment first To the children of Israel Being delivered out of Egypt Keep in mind where they came from A polytheistic culture Egypt And they were going into Canaan Another polytheistic culture So let me kind of tell you three things that were going on in the culture, and they really all sort of fit together. First of all, in Canaan, there would be polytheism. The people of the land believed there were many gods. There was the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the sea, god of the rivers, god of the plain, etc., etc. They all had individual gods that they had to keep track of and worship. Now, a second thing they had in the land of Canaan that sort of is part of the first, but a little bit different, is called henotheism. That is, not only were there a multiplicity of gods and goddesses, but they all were assigned jurisdiction over certain people in certain areas. So uh, usually when there was a conflict between one nation and another nation, they saw it in Canaan as the gods fighting it out and may the best god win. That is why when you read in 1 Kings chapter 20 the children of Israel fighting the Syrians and the children of Israel get victory over that first battle that one of the advisors goes to the Syrian king Ben-Hadad and listen to what he says. Their gods, talking about the children of Israel, their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. If we fight against them in the plain, we will be stronger than they. See, they had this not only polytheistic idea, but that there were certain gods that governed certain areas, and our gods are the gods of the valleys or the plains. So let's have it out in the plains. There's a third ism, and this is perhaps the most dangerous. Not only polytheism, not only henotheism, but syncretism. Here's what happened. What happened is that the people of Israel started becoming like the people of Canaan. Instead of exclusively worshipping the one true God, they worshipped God and Baal, worshipped God and Ashtoreth, worshipped God and Molech. They started worshipping all of the gods of the land along with Yahweh. That's why Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow Him. Okay. God is saying here, Look, I don't want any rivals. I don't want any competition. I am the Lord your God. Now, some in hearing that would say, well, God is awfully insecure. No, just the opposite, friend. God is so secure that basically he's saying, I'm the only game in town. All those other gods don't exist, they're not real. They, people made them up. They're all products of somebody's imagination. Here I am, the only true God, revealing myself to you. Thus, I want exclusive rights when it comes to devotion and obedience. See, the gods of the other nations were contrived. All the gods of any other religious system, even today, they're made up. They don't exist. The only thing they would be is maybe some demonic spirit behind them deceiving people into worshiping them. But there's only one true God. So historically, we understand why God would give this commandment. He's the only one. But also, pragmatically, God gave this commandment. You see, God knows that the human heart can only be fully satisfied when it's in relationship with God. So for God to say, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from your past, you will have no other gods before me. God is also speaking to the human heart knowing that nothing else and no one else will satisfy. If you think about it, worshiping any other God is sort of like hugging a mannequin. Okay, you can, you can uh, see how frustrating that would be. You could hug a mannequin, but you will get no response. You can imagine a response. I heard it speak to me. It winked its eye at me. I mean, even a modern-day doll has more response than any of those false gods or goddesses or images. At least you can pull a string and they'll say, I love you. (laughs) Or a myriad of other things they say now and they do now. See, that was David's contention. When in the Psalms, he pointed to the false beliefs and idols of other nations. And he said this, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. Feet, but they can't walk. Hands, but they can't touch. There's only one true living God. I've I've been throughout Asia and the continent of Africa and the subcontinent of India, and I've watched people bow before their gods and light candles and, and put all sorts of paint and ritualistic incense for hours. I have never yet seen that God supposedly make any kind of response at all. No response at all. You know, the other, about a few weeks ago, I was on the phone. I thought, I was talking to somebody. I got carried away. I talked a long time, not knowing that I'd lost the call. (laughs) You drop a call, you know, but you just think and you're going on and 10 minutes have gone by and they hadn't heard anything. And that's pretty frustrating, isn't it? It's like, ah, I've got to do it all over again. Well, how frustrating is it to pray for minutes or hours and it's sort of like, I'm sorry, the number you have reached has been disconnected or is no longer in service. You see, that's why Elijah on Mount Carmel, when they were going through all of the rituals of praying to Baal for hours... Elijah started mocking them. Call louder. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's predisposed. You see, in real life, you need a God who can hear you. In real life, you need a God who is strong. In real life, you need a God who will never leave you, who will never forsake you. So because I am the Lord Jesus, Your God. And I did something for you by delivering you from your past. There's something I want from you. No other gods besides me. Historically, we understand why. Pragmatically, we understand why. Nothing satisfies our hearts except a relationship with Him. And until then, you will never be satisfied, friend. In closing, personally personally, we have to discover why this is an important commandment. Now, just once again, see the flow of this commandment. The flow is, I'm your God by creation. I am your God by redemption. I want to be your God by devotion. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Now I want some personal response from you. Your devotion. If I am God then I want you to set no one else before me. That is, I want your supreme love and devotion. So, I want to do two things, or actually we all need to do a couple of things. Number one, ask personal questions. And here's the question I want to ask you. What do you think about in quiet moments? What do you think about in quiet moments? You can take a compass, and you can point in any direction. But once you let it settle, it's that magnetic north that the needle always settles on, unless it's an out-of-whack compass. It always goes to north. And your mind and my mind is very much like the needle of a compass. It can do a lot of different things and focus on a lot of different directions in any single day. But when you let it settle, where does it point? What do you think about? A girl? A guy? A hobby? A goal? A thing? More cash? The stock market? God? You see, that is a very fundamental internal question. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So that's the first question. What do you think about in quiet moments? After the personal question, we need to make a personal choice. And really, this is a choice that we make when we give our lives to Christ, I believe. But I also believe that we need to reevaluate that choice from time to time. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He's going to love one and hate the other, cling to one and despise the other. Joshua said much the same thing in his final State of the Union message. this famous one in the end of the book of Joshua. As he gathered the people together in his old age. And he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether it's going to be the gods on the other side of the river that your fathers worshipped. All of those pagan idols that you came from. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell now? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not the Lord plus them. Just the Lord. To the exclusion of all the others. But he said, choose this day whom you will serve. It could be that some are thirsty who have even come tonight. Nothing has satisfied that thirst. You've tried a lot of different things to fill that void inside, as we say, that deep thirst that you have, but nothing has filled it. Nothing has satisfied you. Even church doesn't satisfy it. Well, I'll get involved at church. Even being involved in church, even ministry won't satisfy it. It won't cut it. No, no, no. First things first a relationship with Christ put Jesus Christ Lord and God first and banish all other rivals in your life Saint Augustine said it so well "O oh Lord we are restless until we find our rest in thee until we find our rest in thee who's your God who's your God Whom do you serve? Who has delivered you from sin and given you life? That's the one to serve. You know, six weeks before Elvis Presley died, a reporter came up to him and said, Elvis, when you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich and famous and happy. Are you happy? That's a great question. He knew he was rich and famous. Are you happy? Elva said, I'm terribly lonely. Of course, he said, I'm terribly lonely. Thank you very much. You can have it all and miss it all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we consider tonight who you are. The Lord. The self-existent one. The one who always was, is, and will eternally be. The one who reveals himself. Not the one that somebody made up, Or devised or has to carve and worship like so many other deities and belief systems filled with gods and ideas that are just made up based upon imagination and not revelation. You're the self-existent one, the one who revealed himself through prophets, through creation, and ultimately through Christ himself. The one who has a plan for the world that he created. Lord, you could say to Israel, "I was is the one that delivered you out of the bondage of Egypt. You could say to us, "You're the very God who delivered us from the bondage of our sin, the guilt and the shame of the past, the aimlessness from which we wandered. Because you are that God because you have done what you have done. You plainly told us, no rivals, no competition, no other gods." Lord, all of us deeply want to be happy, to be satisfied. And some of us have tried things that have done the very opposite, just created a deeper thirst. I pray if anyone is not in right relationship with you tonight, that they would give their lives to Christ. And for those of us who are, Lord, we reevaluate who we are in the light of who you are and your claim upon us. And I pray that we would live with first things first. God over us, deserving total and supreme devotion. In Jesus' name, amen. (music)